Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, today, uh, Galatians chapter 6, 1 to 5. Let's read the passage uh, together. If you guys would follow along, I'll read it out loud. Paul the Apostle writing says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But, verse four, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today and uh, we pray that the kind of community that Paul described here in these five verses, Lord, it'd be so beautiful to be part of a community like this that's able to do these things. So we pray for your help, Lord. We pray that the gospel would be at the center of everything that we are, everything that we do, so that we could have more and more until you bring us home to you, a community like this. And uh, we pray that you'd use that community to shape us, Lord, and mold us, protect us from uh, legalism and license, which kind of kill this kind of community. And help us, Lord, by your spirit to to be these things. So speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've probably all had the experience of uh, being in the room when uh, maybe friends or family members uh, start uh, bickering right in front of you. Uh, Or I'm sure many of you have had the experience of actually being the one that has done this. to other people. We, we've, all, we've all been there. We've all uh, done that. And if you remember those moments, you, you know how awkward that can be. You know, there you are at the dinner table, everybody's having a good time, and then something happens, and it's like, whoa, the temperature has changed. This is awkward. I know for me, if I'm ever in that kind of moment, and I'm not the one that caused it, uh, I, I just want to crawl under the table, you know? I just want to get my keys and just run out the front door and never see those people ever again. At least that's how I feel for just a few moments in time. Well, the Galatian church, because they were flirting with legalism, they were in danger of becoming that kind of unattractive, unappealing community. You see, legalism produces a competitive environment, one where pride abounds and envy abounds. So their church, they were on the cusp of becoming the awkward dinner party of the New Testament churches. And Paul has told us that that only the Spirit can produce real transformation in us. Only the Spirit can change us. So we need to walk in the Spirit. But the Galatians were squeezing the Spirit out of their environment with their adoption of legalism. And because of that, true growth wasn't taking place and space for true true growth wasn't allowed. And the gospel community was being replaced with a legalistic one. Now, God had not called them to that legalism, of course. 
and instead had called them to, as I said, the gospel. And according to Paul, a gospel community is totally unlike the church that legalism produces. A gospel community is a beautiful one. It's full of grace, and it's also full of truth, because its leader, Jesus, is the perfect embodiment of both of those attributes. And the people within a church like that are changed. The people within a church like that are truly transformed. Now, I should probably mention to you today, before going any further, that true Christian transformation is not possible in isolation. I think a lot of times we bring that concept or that idea into the body of Christ. Alone, by myself, that's where growth and transformation is going to occur. And to a degree, it can. But if you really want to be conformed into the image of Christ, think about who Jesus was. Jesus was with people. Jesus was in community. Jesus was around others. And it's require for us, if we want to grow, to be more like Jesus, to be around others in the body of Christ. In fact, this is the reason why we have tried so hard to have a very simple, straightforward church strategy here at Calvary. We want to meet together as a really big group on the weekend, and we want to meet in hundreds of little groups all throughout the week. And as we connect together, relationships begin to foster and grow so that we can minister to each other and so that we can help each other grow, but also grow ourselves. Now, in our passage today, we're gonna look at three beautiful elements of a gospel community. And each one of these elements is supported by the other two elements in this little paragraph from Paul. In other words, you can't take any of them in isolation. They're all required for a true gospel community to flourish. So let's look at these three elements today. What's the first element that Paul mentions of a gospel community? Number one, it's this. A gospel community restores others. It restores others. Uh, In the very first verse, Paul said that if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What, What this means is that there will be times where someone in our midst, a brother or sister in Christ that we know, that we love, that we're in relationship with, uh, they are going to succumb to the predatorial nature of temptation. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 that our adversary, the devil, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In a sense, as Christians, we are being hunted. Uh, There are desires of the flesh that are constantly uh, being appealed to by various forms of temptation. And there will be times where someone gives in to that form of temptation. They are caught, he says, in a transgression. And that person at that moment is in need of restoration. Now, when this takes place, though, when someone does give in and is overcome by the predatorial nature of temptation, uh, oftentimes, if they're in a church community, other people will know that this occurred in their lives. So what is somebody supposed to do with that information? Well, if they're part of a legalistic church community, the kind of community that the Galatians were tempted to form, then they will rush to expose it. 
That's what happens in a legalistic environment. You failed, I want to expose you for what you have done. Uh, But on the other side of things, if they're part of a liberal church community, not politically, but meaning that they take the Bible in a liberal sense, they take the subject and truth of scripture uh, very lightly, sin very lightly, In an environment like that, they might quickly dismiss sin. But neither of those is the right approach. Just as we would not openly broadcast a child's failures in front of their friends, we should not unnecessarily expose the transgressions of one of our brothers or sisters in Christ. But also, just as we would not ignore cancer, we should not dismiss cancerous transgressions that are destroying someone that we love from the inside out. What should we do? Well, Paul tells us that a spirit-led person does not take either of those routes, but instead seeks to restore their wayward friend. Paul Tripp said it this way. He said, restoration never minimizes the damaging reality of sin But while it takes sin seriously, it also believes in the power of restorative grace. It believes in God's power to turn a heart and rebuild a life. Now, I think it's important at this point in the teaching to provide a little nuance to the the Apostle Paul's exhortation that we should restore those who've become entrapped by sin. This is not the only thing that the Bible says on this particular subject. I mean, for instance, the Bible teaches that love will cover a multitude of sins. Uh, The Bible also says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. What this means is that we are to be, in general, a forgiving, loving people. We're we're not to be a sin-hunting, sin-sniffing kind of people. That's not what Paul is promoting here when he says, when someone falls into a transgression, let you who are spiritual restore them in a spirit of gentleness. No, on balance... The Bible teaches that we should not become hyper-aware sin hunters, but that when someone we know and love is overtaken by a habitual, damaging, and enslaving pattern in their lives, then mature believers should respond with a Jesus-like rescue mission. That's what Jesus did. He came to rescue us, and a mature believer says, I want to rescue those whom Jesus has already rescued. They know that sin can sink its hooks into someone's life so deep that it becomes difficult to break free. So a person who's a restorer does what they can as the Spirit's instruments to set the captive free. Now, Paul knew that this was hard work, and that it would take godliness, that it would take maturity, that it would take wisdom, that it would take a sensitivity to God's spirit. And that's why he said in verse one that not just anyone in the church can do this work of restoration. He said only those who are spiritual should attempt such acts of restoration. Now, when he says that, or when I mention that, 
I don't want you to quickly dismiss yourself as a candidate for doing this kind of work. Some of you are even feeling a little like relieved, a little off the hook right now. Like, sounds messy to like restore somebody. I don't wanna get involved in someone's life like this. And, but it says, you who are spiritual, I don't feel very spiritual. I guess that's not me, so I don't have to do this work. Now, Galatians chapter five, which we've been studying over the past few weeks, is basically a chapter all about how all of us are called to be spiritual people. We have a flesh, we have a spirit, we're called to walk in the spirit, be led by the spirit, feed the spirit so that the fruit of the spirit can come out of our lives. And so all of us are called to be spiritual. This is not Paul's way of saying something like, you know, in the National Basketball Association, it's helpful if you're seven feet tall to play center, and then you say to yourself, well, I'm not seven feet tall, I guess that'll never be me. No, instead, we're to say, if I'm not spiritual, I should wanna grow to become one of these spiritual people who can do this restorative kind of work. Well, Paul's point is that the skills that are needed to restore a wandering believer are so delicate and sensitive that you must be a person that that is under the influence of God's spirit. You see, to be spiritual means that the restorer must at at the very least be a person of prayer who is willing to go into the spiritual dimension on behalf of someone else. Everyone's issue ultimately at the end of the day has a spiritual component attached to it and the believer must go into the spiritual dimension to wage war on behalf of someone who is struggling. I think of the life of Moses as an example of this. Moses was used by God to deliver the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt and then he became the leader of this two or three million people group of God followers. And they struggled mightily. There were times where they were uh, very much failed in their allegiance to God. Like you remember when Moses came down from the mountain with the 10 commandments and what did he see all the people doing? They were breaking every one of the 10 commandments. And he had to go to God privately, personally, plead with God on their behalf. Ask God for mercy. Ask God for a breakthrough. And at bare minimum, the restorer is doing this kind of work. They're spiritual people in the sense that they're going into the spiritual realm to cry out to the Lord. But another attribute that Paul mentioned that the restorer must have is also there in verse one. Did you see it? He said, they have to have a spirit of gentleness. That's such a crucial attribute to have. You see, when you're restoring or helping restore someone's life, back into spiritual health. There was some kind of decision that they made or set of decisions that they made that led them into the unhealth or the chaos that they are experiencing and living in. And it can be very tempting as you see all of that chaos to be angry about it. My life has been disrupted. I have to do this. And if you had chosen differently, we wouldn't be in this place the restorer might be tempted to say. So they need a spirit of gentleness. But on top of that, they need to have a spirit of humility where they, Paul said there in verse one, keep watch on themselves so that they aren't also tempted. You see, the restorer who's actually good at it, they know what they're capable of. And they know 
that they could fall into the very same pit that they are trying to help someone out of. They don't feel like they're any better than the person that they are trying to restore. Uh, Like a soldier helping an injured comrade off of the battlefield, cautiously alert for enemy fire, the restorer knows to proceed carefully lest the same traps and the same enemy fire take him out. See, when he helps someone break free of pornography or break free of substance abuse or break free of drunkenness or break free of sexual addiction, he is on guard. He knows he can't have a cavalier attitude about these toxins. You know, when I go on a hike through the forest, I know that I am so sensitive to poison oak that I am so cautious. Basically, if it's alive and growing, I don't touch it. Like, is that poison oak? I don't know. It looks like a pine tree, but it could be poison oak. So I just don't touch anything because I'm so, I know what it will do to me. And someone like that, cautious with that sensitivity, hyper aware of their own tendencies, is a benefit to restoring someone else. But the main skill that these spiritual and gentle people must have when restoring is the ability to actually restore someone. The word that Paul used, restore, it's a perfect word. It's a word that in his culture they use to describe resetting a broken bone or mending a fishing net that had been busted. Those are not things that you do with a cavalier or quick attitude. It's like surgical precision, delicate needlework required to do both. And that's what restoring someone's life is like. It takes delicate, surgical-like attention. It takes tender nuance and care. You have to know when to offer a strong word. You have to know when to offer, on the other hand, a soft place to land. It's hard work. It's complicated work. You never know what you'll discover when you enter into someone else's mess. But when they're ready you'll need a spirit-led, gentle, and wise approach. Many years ago, uh, when our family dog was still just a puppy, uh, in, in, in our first year of having him, uh, we were getting ready as a family to go on our first long summer vacation away from him. And I remember our, my daughters were all much younger then, and they were all very sad about leaving him. And Uh, the big thing that they were sad about was that he would really miss them while they were gone. That's what they were really sad about. He's really going to miss us. He's really going to be sad about us uh, being gone. And so as a dad, I thought I know exactly what to say right now. And uh, so I jumped in to fix their issue. And I let them know. I said, you know, the person that is going to care for him, uh, you know, She's great. She's going to care for him well. He's going to have all the food he needs. He's going to have all the water he needs. He's going to have all the shelter he needs. And he's a dog. So like those things are going to make him so happy. And they're kind of tracking with me. And then I thought I need to really drive this point home. So I said the words, in fact, he, he'll have such a good time that he probably will forget all about us which just led them to a totally different set of fears that we were gonna come home and our dog was just gonna look at us like, who are you guys, you know, kind of thing. 
Uh, I was not spirit-led. I was not gentle. I was not wise. (laughs) I tell this humorous story just to say that if we're not ready when it comes to restoring someone, a brother or sister who's fallen into sin or transgression, we will only offer hack, brutal, unsuccessful and ineffective solutions. We have to be spirit-led, we have to be gentle, we have to be wise. Now, before I move on to the next section, I just wanna mention that these aren't the only ingredients that Paul thought were necessary to restore someone back into gospel community. Uh, The Bible is very robust in talking about this particular subject. I mean, for one, there has to be an open door. There has to be an opportunity. Uh, there will come times in your life where you are privy to information about a brother or sister in Christ. You know what they're getting into and maybe they don't even know that you know and you're gonna have to pray and ask God to open that up, to bring it into the light so that there's an opportunity. They have to have a willingness in heart. If they're just running saying, I don't wanna have anything to do with God, anything to do with the church, anything to do with Jesus, I'm gonna do my own thing, then you're gonna have a very hard time restoring them because there's a lack of, of will. They have to at least be eventually repentant, want restoration, demonstrate some change of behavior. Even in this paragraph in verse five, Paul said that each one of us will have to bear our own load. So he understands that. And the restorer often has to initiate this process though, one-on-one. Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 18 that we're to do this first one-on-one, and if that's unsuccessful, then we bring another believer along with us, and if that's unsuccessful, we bring someone in church leadership along with us to try to get the job done. The restorer often has to carefully explain even what sin is in the first place. Sometimes someone doesn't even know that what they're doing is out of bounds in Scripture, They have to explain things like repentance and confession and forgiveness. So they have to have a theological understanding. They have to wrestle in prayer, like I mentioned. They have to provide safe and supportive environments for people to come back to. Sometimes when you're in this restoring role, you have to offer accountability yourself to the person that you're helping. And of course, they need to be able to maintain confidentiality. They can't blabber about someone else's life to others who have no business knowing about it. All this to say, it is hard work to restore someone who has been caught in a transgression. It's like putting together a complex machine that someone else has dismantled. It's slow and it's tedious. But what I wanna say here is that it is good work. It's beautiful work because it's Jesus-like work. He rescued us, he's restoring us, so wouldn't it be fun to be involved in him doing that in the life of someone else from time to time? Okay, so that's the first thing about a gospel community. I had the most to say about that one. But the second thing that I wanted to show you is that the gospel community, it also bears the burdens of others in the church. Uh, Paul said in verse two that we need to be bearing one another's burdens so that we could fulfill the law of Christ. Now, some of you might wonder what's the difference between restoring someone and bearing the burdens of someone else. 
Well, bearing, restoring has to do with, with someone giving into sin and you're helping them come out of it. Bearing burdens has to do with helping someone through life stuff, the tragedies and difficulties that come upon all of us in life. Now, others of you might also be asking another question. Well, what about in verse four and five when Paul says that we all have to assess our own work and that we all have to bear our own load? How can he with one breath say that we need to bear each other's burdens and then with the next breath say we have to bear our own load or our own burden? Uh, How can both of those things be true? Well, Paul actually used two different words in the Greek language to write about our load or burdens uh, and and then our own uh, personal load or burdens. When he said in verse five that we have to bear our own load, he used a word that meant our own pack, But when he said that we should bear one another's burdens, he used a word describing a notably heavy load, like a moment in their life where the weight is overwhelming. Uh, To think about this from the words of Jesus, you might remember when Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He gives a yoke to us. He gives a burden to every one of us individually. That would be your own personal load that Jesus has given to you. But then Jesus also said in Matthew chapter seven that there are times when the storms of life beat down upon us in a unique kind of way. Those would be special burdens that come upon our lives. Uh, You might understand the difference between the two if you've ever been on a long backpacking uh, adventure in the the backcountry somewhere. Uh, to, to, To do that kind of thing where you're packing in all your supplies, every part of your team, every person that goes, they have to be fit enough and strong enough to hike many miles. They have to be strong enough, fit enough to carry uh, their own shelter, their own water, and their own food. But if you're way out there in the wilderness and one of your friends gets injured, then everybody else in the group is going to take all of their supplies, divvy it up amongst everybody else, and help get them back into safety. They had their own pack, but then something happened in their life where that pack became a burden that they could no longer manage and they needed, at least for a moment, the help of someone else. So let's think about some of the burdens that we need to help each other with in the gospel community that we are trying to form. I wanna give you a handful of burdens that come up in in our lives today. One, I think, would just be... uh, like I used from my analogy, literal sicknesses and injuries that come into our lives from time to time. These can be burdens. It's a huge challenge when we're temporarily weakened by a sickness or an injury or worse, permanently diagnosed with something that we're not yet used to. It's just come into our lives more recently. And especially at the very beginning, we really need the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes it's helpful to receive meals from others or rides from others or encouraging notes or text messages from others or phone calls from others or visits from others or help around the house from others. All of these things can be useful to helping that kind of burden. Another burden I think that's common is the burden of financial distress. You know, it's interesting when you read the book of Proverbs, Uh, The book of Proverbs is is a book that really highlights personal responsibility. But then at the end of the book, uh, you have this godly woman who opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. 
And uh, when poverty comes into especially a fellow believer's life, uh, it's good for us to do everything that we can as we have opportunity, which we'll see next week in verse 10, to alleviate their burden. That's a, that's a serious burden that can come into a person's life. I think grief, of course, is another major burden that enters into our lives from time to time. I've talked to many Christians over the years who have told me once they've passed through their darkest hours of grief that they really could have used more of their Christian friends during their darkest moments. I think a lot of us don't know what to do when somebody else is grieving, and we tend to think, well, they need space, and so I'll step back. My encouragement is let them be the ones to tell you if they need you to step back. Instead, take a step out and say, I'm, I'm just thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I can't imagine what you're going through. And please don't give them that quick, cheap kind of advice. Don't be dismissive with Bible verses about their situation. Don't come at someone who's grieving and just let them know, hey, don't worry. Romans 8 tells us that God will work together for good. All things, uh, all things will work together for good to, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let them go through that period of grief. Sit with them, be with them, listen to them, and pray for them. Some that we know will endure the burdens of leadership. That's another category, I believe. I heard someone once describe the pressure that leaders endure as similar to the way that pressure per square inch increases the further down into the ocean a scuba diver swims. In other words, the further down you go, the more intense the pressure becomes. I think many leaders feel that increased pressure. And yes, they need to trust God. But what we see here is that coming alongside of them and bearing their burdens is often good. Even in the New Testament, the mighty apostle Paul had a moment of stress where he thought about anxiously the way that the Corinthian church was going to respond to a word of correction that he had written to them. And his friend Titus came to him and encouraged him, lifted up his spirit and his soul as he experienced that leadership burden. I think another burden many of us will experience in this modern time is that many of us will experience the burden of being marginalized for our faith in the workplace. And many work environments are filled with danger for holding biblical views. Now, Jesus told us that for this, we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Still, there's gonna be times where our fears about what could happen to us become actual burdens of things that are happening to us. And when that happens, Jesus, of course, told us that we should rejoice and be glad because our heavenly reward is great but it's still a blessing when brothers and sisters in Christ come to our aid and encourage us while here on earth. And sometimes our burden is a weight of guilt. Now the psalmist said, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Sometimes we're overcome by a sense of guilt over our past or our history or things that we've done that we no longer need to be restored from or come out of, but we're just feeling it because we know that we've failed in the past. And when those things weigh down upon us, it's so good to hear the loving words of a believing friend, not dismissing sin, but also not destroying us with it, but pointing us afresh to the cross, the place that our burdens are finally lifted. But many burdens overtake us on this journey that we're on. And Paul said that it is 
fulfilling the law of Christ or the law of love to take away or lessen or mitigate the weight that other people bear. When we carry the burdens of our fellow Christians, we're imitating Jesus, the one who carried our burdens when he went to the cross. But none of this can happen without some humility, which is why Paul said in verse three, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. When we're conceited, though we might not even say out loud that we're better than someone else, our self-deceived self-importance will keep us from bearing others' burdens. But the truth is that we're all nothing outside of God's grace. Everyone needs Jesus. So no one is above anyone else. And when we realize this about ourselves, it helps us to care for others in their moment of trial and pain and difficulty. I remember a conversation I had with a trusted friend at the end of last year. And uh, at the time, uh, ministry life was going great for me. My personal life was going great just as it is now. Uh, But for whatever reason, even as things were going really well, I was personally feeling tired, really emotionally drained. And so we were talking about it. And he did this beautiful thing to lift my burden and What he did is he just reminded me of what the previous year had looked like in my life. He pointed out all the times that I'd been doing ministry on the road. He pointed out all the projects and different initiatives that I'd been doing and how fatiguing that would be. He pointed out that my oldest daughter had also gone away to college for the very first time in that same year and that my wife had increased her work hours to help pay for it and that that had changed and affected our family dynamic. And as he reminded me of these things, he helped me see that what I was feeling was super normal and that I needed just a little more time with them. I needed to get refreshed with the Lord and that things were good. But before he spoke to me, I couldn't see why I felt the way I was feeling. His burden-bearing love helped me, though, to tap into God's love and find the restoration that I need. So we need to bear each other's burdens. Okay, the last thing, though, that I want to point out to you that a gospel community does, we've seen that it restores others. We've seen that it bears another's burdens. But the last thing, number three, very briefly, is that it's filled with people who are responsible for themselves. Look at what Paul said in verse four and five. He said, but each one needs to test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our continual work or our continual load, that's what he's talking about here, it's different than our occasional burdens, trials that come onto our lives for a moment or a period of time. Our work or our load is the life that Jesus has individually assigned to each one of us, the yoke he's given to us, the burden that he's given to us. Now, this whole paragraph that we're looking at this morning, to me, it's so incredibly and beautifully balanced. I mean, what it does is it helps us carve out a middle path in between two extremes. Uh, Rather than forget all about our church family uh, so that we fill up our lives with personal activities, God tells us, that our lives need to have room in them for burden-bearing and 
restoration. That takes time, that takes connection, that takes relationship. But on the other hand, rather than being so consumed with others that we forget to tend to our own lives on our own field, God tells us here to test our own work and to bear our own load. And to walk this middle biblical path requires that we, like Paul said there in verse four, test our lives, that we self-examine our lives. And through self-examination, he said, that we can have a holy boasting, not a uh, selfish or ugly pride, but a holy boasting in the sense that we are glad with the life that we chose to live. Now, I hope you can see what Paul did in this paragraph. Like I said earlier, all three of these elements, they all go together. If you were to look at uh, this paragraph and and maybe try to illustrate it, uh, you'd probably see a graphic with some kind of image that represents you, and then flowing from you would be a one-way arrow to someone else. That would be the first category where you are restoring someone else, your life being poured out for the sake of someone else. Uh, Then there'd be a second arrow going from you to someone else, but going back from that someone else back to you, a a two-way arrow in other words, because that's what bearing each other's burdens is like. I'm helping you and you're helping me. But this last little section uh, is an arrow that goes out from you, but points right back to you. It, It loops back to you because Paul is saying, we all have a personal responsibility for our own lives, our own walk with God. What I wanna say here is that when we do this, when we, when we do verse four and five, when we do this third portion, when we bear our own load, we are, I think, a huge blessing to the gospel community. I think in a sense, you could say that the gospel community or the church, it's like a kitchen that is shared by, with and by many roommates. Uh, if you think about a kitchen like that, what, what goes best is when each person that lives in the house or the apartment, when they clean up after themselves. You know, the kitchen starts to take a real downturn when everybody just creates a mess and then doesn't take care of their own responsibility. When I was a single man, that was exactly what our kitchen was like. I remember finding a bag of potatoes that had become a science experiment behind our microwave. It was just like things were growing everywhere, you know, because no one was taking personal responsibility. Now, there will, of course, be many times that we need others to encourage us, others to support us, but tackling the life that Christ designed for us individually means that the rest of the community is going to be blessed. In other words, I could say it like this. When I sacrificially love my wife and I'm faithful to her, when I raise my kids into adulthood with that goal, that target of maturity in the future, or when I walk with God personally, in my own life personally, my own load, in a sense you could say that everyone else's load becomes a little lighter because I haven't created as many messes for other people to have to clean up. And the gospel allows for all of this. This community-based approach combined with a highly individualistic responsibility you see, when Jesus came and saved us and birthed the church, what did he, how did he do it? He saved individuals. He saved you. He saved me. 
So though we're birthed into God's family, we are individual sons and daughters who, according to Paul in Philippians chapter two, must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, one day we're gonna stand before God, each one of us as individuals. And if you've personally trusted in Christ's work on the cross, you're going to find your individual name written in a singular book with the names of millions of his people. What is that? Individuals inside of a gospel community. And all of this burden bearing and gentle restoration, it's only possible in a gospel church. And without the cross, we turn into an environment and culture of legalistic human effort. Uh, this leads to an unwillingness to help others along with an allergy to vulnerable transparency. You'll never be honest with another believer in a legalistic environment. It's also performative. You can't really ever talk about shortcomings or failures or areas that you need help or that you're weak. So we have to keep our focus on Jesus and his cross so that we can be a blessing on the journeys that others are on and be blessed on our own. And I grew up in uh, the... Uh, the beginning really of when video games started taking off. And uh, I had one of the original Ataris and then I graduated to the original Nintendo. And uh, so I, uh, in that era, grew up playing this beautiful game called The Legend of Zelda. I don't know if you know anything about this game. I've heard that there's modern versions of this game. They've kept this franchise going, but I played none of those, but I did master the 1986 version. And uh, in that game, there's a little character, his name's Link, that's who you are, and your whole mission is to save this princess named Zelda. And you start out with barely anything, you don't know anything, you don't have any tools or weapons or treasures or maps or anything like that, but then as you're going through the journey, there's all these characters that you meet who help you along the way. I think games like that, they illustrate quest games. They illustrate the challenge and the difficulty of life as we know it. I think in a sense, we can relate. The obstacles in life are nonstop. The temptations in life are real. The burdens are huge. And though we know that we're called to our own work and our own load, it's refreshing to be part of a church where others help you stay on track. And when a church is rightly centered on the gospel, it has the tools that it needs to help everyone with their quest. When we wander into sin, the gospel and that the message of his grace brings us back into a life of holiness. When we're overburdened, the gospel community carries those burdens with us just as Jesus bore our burdens on the cross. And when we're scuffling in our personal walk with him, we remember that God rescued us personally so that he might sanctify us personally. And we really never know when we're gonna need this kind of help. So my advice is that the best move is to press into the body of Christ, walk in the spirit, and commit to a life fulfilling the law of Christ, which is love, and you'll be drinking in the goodness of the gospel community to help you grow and to help others grow all around you. Amen? Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. 
You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.